A friend who's a snowbird stays south until May. You're missing April and spring in Wisconsin, I say. He shrugs and replies, with my schedule, I'm happy. Because this year is proof. April can be crappy. This is Spectrum West. I'm Al Ross, tumbling into your day with news, views, and personalities engaged in the abundant arts, culture, and humanities of western Wisconsin. This week, Menominee native and West Coast jazz drummer David Whitman talks about his new album, recorded with good friends and great musicians. Friday is Earth Day, and all April is National Poetry Month, so asking a poet for some verse about the Earth sort of makes sense. So we invited one of our favorite wordsmiths, Thomas R. Smith. Sunday is Culture Fest on the UW-Eau Claire campus. We'll be talking with one of the coordinators, Lee Shapiel. And we'll get underway this way. I don't remember where I read about him, but as soon as I heard that Edward McClellan, the Chicago journalist, had written a book called How to Speak Midwestern, and he traveled extensively, including in Wisconsin, for research, well, I knew I wanted more. I discovered the Michigan-born, auto-industry-raised writer has other books under his belt. Midnight in Vehicle City, Folktales and Legends of the Middle West, Nothing But Blue Skies, Young Mr. Obama, The Third Coast, Horse Players, his first novel, Running for Home, released last year, and another novel is in the works, As We Speak, and Speak We Did, recently. You're an interesting guy, not a different kind of guy, and I'll explain that a bit later. Um, All right. But but you're very interesting and interested, which always makes for a good writer. Welcome to Wisconsin Public Radio. Thank you. I think our audience will enjoy meeting more of uh, Ted McClellan than just the author of this one book, and I don't know where to begin. You grew up in Lansing, Michigan. You have an affinity for the Oldsmobile. My dad had an Oldsmobile. We we had a Delta 88. That's the first car I remember riding in. That was my next question. Ever own one? Yeah. Yeah. The Rocket 88, by the way, I found goes 0 to 60 in just over 12 seconds. Yeah, well, I've, I always said if I ever had a rock band, I would call it Rocket 88 because that was the first rock and roll song, and that was named after an Oldsmobile engine. Yeah. You've been a Chicagoan since 1995. Is there a right way or wrong way to pronounce Chicago or Chicago? Uh, you know, that's a debate, actually. Uh, I kind of Chicago is kind of the old school pronunciation, but I think Chicago is now now becoming the more common and accepted way. But if you meet somebody with a heavy Chicago accent, they'll say Chicago. Barack Obama says Chicago, and I say Chicago. The current mayor says Chicago. That seems to be winning out. Let's talk about your writing in general. I've already previewed the titles of your books. You write about varied topics, and I'm curious, as you write, what does it take for you to determine that a particular theme deserves book form? I guess before it's mostly been personal interest, although the, the book I'm writing now, it's about Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas and how they set aside their rivalry to uh, unite against the Confederacy. Mm. So, you know, my agent said there's always room for another Lincoln book. There have been 15,000. <laughs> so I'm hoping this is going to be, I think my books have mostly kind of been regional interest. So I'm hoping this one's going to be of, of national interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had an op-ed in the Washington Post last year on January 6th about, you know, how Douglas was a, a gracious loser and how gracious losers protect our democracy. And there were a lot of sore losers uh, who acted out later that day. I'm not sure what that is. Irony, maybe. Were you aware of that gathering? Of course, you didn't choose the uh, no, you didn't I choose mean, the publication I, I, date, did you? I wrote it um, the month before. After reading the article myself, I think Americans should read or reread it 
Because after what happened on that day, and it was published on that day, folks may have either missed it or forgotten it in the disbelief of what they witnessed, because your message was uh, pretty important and pretty contrary to what was going on. Right. Well, we want to bring the book out in 2024. We hope it's, it'll, be, uh, it'll be timely again. Lincoln, Lincoln's always timely, no matter how old he is. No how kidding. Old he gets. Do we have a Stephen A. Douglas in today's dilemma? Wonderful. No, <laughs> we, didn't. we didn't last time. No, we didn't. Let's go back to uh, your Chicago ties. Several years ago, you talked about the disappearing Chicago accent. In the piece that I read, uh, you referenced that uh, Saturday Night Live skit, you know, De Bears and, right. and that stuff. Given that it's been several years since your quote about disappearing accents, is it now hardly noticeable? Or you, how you, quickly you, you, is it disappearing? I mean, it's still there in certain occupations and certain neighborhoods. Some of the white ethnic neighborhoods on the far southwest side and far northwest side, you can hear it. You can hear it among, you know, police officers and firefighters and, and city workers. But I think, you know, regional accents are kind of in decline everywhere, not just in Chicago because of uh, multiculturalism and deindustrialization and geographic mobility and education. I think mm -hmm. the younger generation just tends to uh, all be trending toward a more neutral accent. Of course, our friend Charlie Behrens is doing his best to keep yeah to keep him he, alive. Yeah, he does. He does that Midwestern <laughs> minute. I, I'm sure he's exaggerating oh. whatever Wisconsin accent he has. Uh, there's yeah, it, it might be exaggeration, but you still run into people who do that. Yeah, right. And the thunderstorms and right. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear it mainly among older people. Sure, honestly. that's of course the point that uh, you know it will continue to slowly fade, probably. Mm -hmm. But again, who knows? On the phone with Ted McClelland, the book is "How to Speak Midwestern" and so much more. Um, your book has uh, seven basic rules for speaking Midwestern. Oh, oh. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you're able to demonstrate those. You don't have to oh. do them all because many of them are self-explanatory. But talking right. through your nose—that's you know—that's one thing we're all. Uh, right. Me, I'm come well, from Wisconsin. Originally. This is the one people like. If you must criticize, do so passive aggressively. Uh, it's been said that in New York, every insult is a compliment. This is my buddy Jerry. He's been busting my balls for 30 years now, right, Jerry? Mm -hmm. In the South, on the other hand, every compliment is an insult. Well, aren't you kind? Or bless his heart. In the Midwest, you're never certain whether you're being complimented or insulted. Midwesterners don't like to sound critical or hurt anyone's feelings, so we develop code words that allow us to avoid stating an opinion altogether. The most important words to know are interesting and different. If something has merit, but you don't personally care for it, it's interesting. What do you think of the Vikings' new stadium? Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. The story is told of a consultant who presented an idea to a group of Minnesotans and thought it was going over well because they all said it was interesting. And then uh, at a movie theater in a Minneapolis suburb, a man walked out of an afternoon screening of Fargo and delivered a one-word review more devastating than Siskel and Ebert thumbs down. Well, he grumbled, according to the New York Times. That was different. And thank you for clarifying that, because I brought it up at the beginning of our conversation, and I <laughs> right. knew that we'd get to that. So right. you are interesting, and you're not different. Good for you. Thank uh, you. Talk through your nose. That's one. Don't just pronounce ours. Draw them out. Omit certain vowels. You brought up garage, and uh, actually, the studio that I'm sitting in at the moment, it's near Chippewa Falls, but here they say Chippewa. And, oh, yeah, and they talk about career center. And director. Career center. Yeah. Director. Yeah, yeah, those would be other good examples. Mm -hmm. uh, you must, if you're going to speak Midwestern, mispronounce foreign names. Mm -hmm. Here we have Des Plaines, Illinois. Uh, Detroit, in French, it's Detroit, oh, which boy. means the Narrows. That's pretty different. Okay. Uh, St. Louis is San Louis. There's a Versailles, Indiana. 
There's Cairo, Illinois. Yes. Sandoval, Illinois. Milan, Michigan. What do you have there in, in Wisconsin? We have a lot of Native American names like Kaukauna and Shawano is more spelled Shawano. And of course, Shawamigan. How are you going to possibly know how to pronounce that? And there's lots of French and lots of Norwegian. And of course, eastern uh, Minnesota has, has that as well. Another rule, carbonated beverages pop, not soda. And if you're going to talk Midwestern, you should say oh, yeah. you guys a lot. Yeah. Calling a carbonated beverage pop is a marker of Midwesternism. On the east and west coast, it's soda. In the south, it's Coke. But in, in the Midwest, it's a sound a cork makes when it's drawn out of a bottleneck. Ben and Perry Faginson, the Detroit bakers who founded Fago, took note of this and named their strawberry-flavored drink Fago Red Pop. Of course, the last one was you guys. See you guys a lot. You're preaching to the choir there. Everybody I, I, knows. I, I, I'd rather say yes. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think that kind of went out of style after Archie Bunker. The geographic boundaries of what we consider the Midwest are much wider from a dialectical point of view. It goes as far east as uh, Pennsylvania and is divided into three areas. It was fun to read about your Wisconsin influences. You uh, had time well spent in Minnesota and Wisconsin. I currently Mm -hmm. am sitting in the north-central region. There's also the inland north and the midland sections. So have you ever actually heard anyone say, yeah, hey, dear? Every day. Really? Sure. Well, that's an exaggeration. Okay. So those designations, and I should point out that Wisconsin is the only state that's in all three, that has Mm -hmm. all three. Are these designations McClelland originals, or are you using established data? Oh, no, no, no. I I use a linguist map. So there is a linguist map out there. Right. Didn't know that. So 15 states on that map. And so we have to admit that the Midwest, as far as we've thought of it over the years, has now gotten uh, bigger gotten right i love you said boughten too that's another word that i love yeah oh that's a wisconsin some wisconsin words come from german when people say come with we're going over gyms you want to come with this derives from a german construction in which mit functions as a particle the same way up does and pick it up you bring up the buy thing too go buy go buy yeah buy use like a german word buy b-e-i which can mean at or to yeah so we're going to go buy ted's house yeah, or we had dinner by Steve's. First time I heard that, I said, well, why don't you just stop in rather than just go by? Yeah, or else it would be housed by you. There you are. How's it by you? How's it by you? Exactly. And Chicago, too, has its own little corner of Illinois. I mean, the entire rest of the state is in another region. It's in the Midland region, yeah. The classic Midland word is Washington. <laughs> I, pretty much, I, thought I, I, I think I heard our Senator Dick Durbin say Washington oh boy. a few weeks ago because he's, he's from East St. Louis. That's stuff I don't get. I don't know where that comes from. So now before uh, we say goodbye, I'm curious about the, the research that this kind of book takes. How does a writer set aside the time necessary for research and data gathering? Is there a formula? Like, like in the movies, uh, every minute takes 20 or so of shooting? How do you allot no, time I mean, for I research? Took some, I, I took some trips to different cities. I went to Buffalo and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and Indianapolis, St. Louis. I went to Minnesota in the winter when it was 17 below zero. (laughs) You were in Brainerd, weren't you? Yeah, I I figured it would be better to go there than to Minneapolis. Uh, I figured in the the cities, the accent might have been kind of averaged out or metroed out. So I went to Brainerd and did some cross-country skiing and some ice fishing. All right. And you had a lot of fun at the beginning of the, the Minnesota segment or the South or North Dakota segment about Fargo, which probably is the biggest example of uh, yeah, movie but, makers having fun with how we Yeah, talk. and I, I actually talked to an actress who said she was she was in the movie. She played one of the hookers. She was Frances McDormand's speech coach, but she had the best accent in the whole movie, but, you know, in that bar scene. The only movie she ever made. 
So this book must have used up a lot of your research time, more than other books you write? Probably less, actually. There wasn't a whole lot of book research. There wasn't mm -hmm. a whole lot of going back and, and looking through archives. I was mostly talking to people because it was called How to Speak Midwestern. Cool. There's a novel, your first. So, so the Cliff's Notes version of that book, Running for Home, you were a runner when you were younger. Yeah, so. it's about a young man, and he's a runner at this high school. And, uh, you know, his dad works in the auto plant, and the auto plant shuts down, and family has to decide its future. He has to decide whether he's going to pursue a scholarship or, you know, stay with his struggling parents. I guess those are the Cliff's Notes. Very cool. Let's direct people to your website and tell folks oh, how they can. Uh, yeah, EdwardMcClellan.com. They can purchase your books where? All over? Yeah, or they can, if they want to sign copy, they can uh, email me at TedMcClellan.com, T-E-D-M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N-D. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, it's gone in all different kinds of directions. I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and appreciate you being with us on WPR. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks. Thanks for interviewing me. Spectrum West on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Al Ross. Always good to be with you. Hey, 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 it's Eau Claire Jazz Festival weekend. Go to EauClaireJazz.com for all the juicy details and soak in as much as you can. It begins Friday night, of course, with the Jazz Crawl. Well, you might know it as the International Folk Fair, having visited in years past, but it's now called Culture Fest, and it's grown to be one of the most important meet and greets of the year. It is Sunday on the UW-Eau Claire campus, the beautiful, sprawling Davies Center, and it's something amazing and uplifting for every member of your family. Let's meet Lee Chappelle, one of the many people responsible for making it worthy of those delightful adjectives. You are an international student manager and international student support coordinator. You are involved in a few efforts, the intensive English program, the host friend program. You're on the International Student Orientation Committee, and you advise yeah. international students on general immigration issues. Wow. That's right. Got to tell you, if there's one topic that's right up there in the hit parade of things on people's minds, it's immigration. And immigration is in the spotlight and constantly shifting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's a really big subject. I work specifically with students coming into the United States on F and J-1 visas. So okay. they're specifically coming as students. So you just try to stay up to date with guidance from the government about what the regulations are, what they have to study, how many credits they have to be in, what it looks like to travel outside and then back into the United States. Have the visas that you mentioned uh, remained safe, or are there people out there trying to change those as well? Uh, for the most part, it seemingly remained safe with COVID the last few years. It's when and where students can study and how they can mm -hmm. study, which has been helpful, um, especially as people try to figure out how to live in the middle of everything going on. International study is really a, a wonderful thing, is it not? I mean, we have young people going places, and we have people from other places coming here, and that's been going on for quite a while. It's, um, it's very broadening, isn't it? It is. It has been going on for, for quite some time. So my colleagues in this office as well are working on the study abroad side, but I just get to work with students that are coming here to the U.S., it's a, it's a lot of fun. It really does bring a different perspective to 
life and how things are done differently around the world. Part of my role is connecting other students with the new international students here on campus or community members through the host run program and trying to give students coming in as much support, connection, resources, a welcoming environment as possible. But it's fun because you get to learn a lot about who people are, how they see the world, how they solve problems or think or work together. It's fun to work with this group. The term cultural adjustment is used in describing some of what you do. What are some of the things that you're able to do to help foreign students culturally adjust? Yeah, well, we try to go over orientation, an in-depth orientation of like, okay, welcome to campus. We're going to give you a lot of information, but here's some faces to the resources and people that you can talk to once you have questions after the first week, once the classes start. In the intensive English program, we're very able to connect students and work with them, uh, overcoming cultural differences or challenges especially when it's like week three and it's not the honeymoon anymore. You know, it's like, oh, shoot, I I actually don't know how to handle these interactions, what people are actually asking or what the expectations are for me. So we just tried to, you know, build programming that says, hey, here are some things that you might run into. Here are some ways that you can answer. Here are some ways that you can get by the first semester here. And then as they know more people, they're able to adapt. But we just try to provide resources, answer questions, connect students to activities on campus, food, you know, that's a big one, right? And just like the local environment of where can you go? We're enjoying a conversation with Lee Shapiel. He's International Student Support Coordinator, UW-Eau Claire. Our specific topic is Culture Fest. It's coming up Sunday afternoon from noon to four, Davies Center at the university. It's amazing that we have to say it, but uh, hey, it's in person. It's in person. Usually we don't get excited over a, a term like that. So you didn't have it in 2020, obviously, and in 2021 it was virtual. How was that pulled off? Well, we just spread things throughout the week, and so we had different groups and presenters um, going throughout a whole week instead of one day. We had different courses and food throughout the week as well that try to highlight different areas around the world. Not the same, but it was still trying to connect people to uh, different cultures, different foods, different learning. So, yeah, it wasn't quite the same virtually, um, but we, we just tried to make those connections as much as we could. But we're excited to be back in person. And we're excited to have you back in person. It's kind of like a mini United Nations, this thing. There are, from what I read, 19 participating groups. There is music. There are presentations. There are demonstrations. One of the favorite parts must be the cooking demonstration. That stood out to me. Yeah, and it's actually the first time our dining services has done a demonstration. So Hmm. they're going to do a few recipes from the Mediterranean, things that are easy that anyone can do, make at home. There'll be recipe cards for you to pick up as well. Um, But yeah, it is like a United Nations. You'll walk in to the Davies Center. You'll be able to find a passport and a map where all these groups will be throughout Davies Center. You'll be able to go to places and get stamps on your passport. You'll be able to learn more about student groups. We've got community groups as well. 
yeah, it's a really fun day of culture, of food, of demonstrations, like you said. Wow, that's uh, you have a nice setup there. That sounds like it's a lot of fun with the passport and the stamps. That's a nice touch. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we try to make it so it's like easy to find around and easy to find places as well. And a passport lends itself pretty well to the mm-hmm. idea of culture fest. Mm-hmm. And it feels very right that there is going to be some Ukrainian representation. Tell me about the Swan Lake Ballet from Menominee. What do you know about them? Yeah, they reached out and said they'd like to perform and give just more in depth of like who the Ukrainian people are and the dances that they uh, have been learning for quite some time. It's a ballet group out of Menominee. They've got a variety of ages of performers and they also have a room as well. Well, I think they'll bring in some food and they'll have some cultural artifacts that you can look at. I think they'll be doing demonstrations in the room as well, but Mm -hmm. they will be on our main stage as well, right on the first floor. Yeah, it's good timing to learn more about uh, this group. Bet you they'll get some big applause. I would think so. You know, I I was thinking about fests like this and and the mingling of cultures. I had a little bit of frustration on my mind because I have to think that sometimes the people you wish would attend don't consider attending. If only they would attend, they might have a much smoother appreciation of how people are people, and these kinds Mm. of things are are wonderful to have. And here's a following question. Tell me about some comments that you or maybe some of your colleagues have had uh, over the years from people who just did not expect such an uplifting and eye-opening experience. Yeah, I think it's it's a simple concept, an event where student groups or community groups are able to set up a lot of activities and games for kids. And like you can learn how to write your name in a different language. Mm. Um, and you can see dress and, and hear music. And at the simplest level, you know, you realize, you know, people are people and that you are just um, learning more about, hey, okay, what's your background? What's your history? How do you do this? Why do you do those things the way you do? And it's a really simple laid back area just to go, oh, we can connect. And that's what the goal is, is just trying to get people to connect with each other. The Chippewa Valley is lucky where it's a far more diverse than what you'd think it would be. But sometimes it just takes a little bit of time and effort to showcase those cultures. And so that's what we um, are hoping to offer and hoping to present to people. It's a really good day for kids. It's a really good day for families. It's free. Can't emphasize that enough. Yeah, Yeah, you can stay as long as you'd like. Mm -hmm. All the parking lots and stuff are open on Sunday. And so people don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because that can get dicey. Yeah, that's right. Yep. All the parking lots are open. It's free, so you can just park either in the parking lots or in the third ward on the streets around there, and it's a quick walk to the Davie Center. Cool. I'm of the opinion that Culture Fest should be a national thing, and it should be once a month in a different location every month. That would help a lot, wouldn't it? That'd be a lot of fun. It would, so I'm putting you in charge. Okay, Lee? Oh, perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'll just use your connections, and we'll work together to get that done. Good deal. So thanks very much for the work you do, the important work of helping the people in this little corner of the world understand and appreciate each other better. Here's hoping they take the solidarity that's uh, witnessed here, spread it around, and thank you, Lee Shapiro, for being part of this program. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Thank you for uh, sending out the information to those that listen to you. It's really appreciated. Spectrum West on WPR. Here's some memos for you. The University of Wisconsin Stout Symphonic Band presents their spring concert at 2 o'clock Sunday afternoon in the Memorial Student Center Great Hall. 
St. Croix Festival Theatre presents the play Intimate Apparel now through May 1st. Go to festivaltheater.org for details, tickets, and all that good stuff. And the Red Cedar Choir's spring concert is coming up this coming Monday at 7 p.m. in the Theater of the Fine Arts Building on the UW-Eau Claire Barron County campus in Rice Lake. Well, it's National Poetry Month, and if you're listening on Thursday, tomorrow is Earth Day. But if you're tuned into the Friday Encore, today is Earth Day. And I hope you've done something nice for her. Being a guy who likes convenience, I pondered how I might celebrate Poetry Month and Earth Day simultaneously. And just like that, it came to me, Thomas R. Smith. I revere his always accessible poetry and... He's a champion of the environment. You have a poem that's going to portray how smart I am having you on the show. You have a poem about the first Earth Day. I do. The first Earth Day was in 1970. The year before last, we passed the 50th anniversary of it. So this is actually an anniversary poem. I was here in River Falls, where I am right now, but I was a kind of hanger-on student at that time. I was very involved in our first uh, Earth Day celebration. You were still trying to get over Woodstock, too. I was, which had been less than a year before. Okay, you're on, man. Okay, first Earth Day. It was a different country, a different Earth. Nixon had signed the Clean Air Act, and we were still running on the fumes of Woodstock the summer before. Our Senator Gaylord Nelson, Wisconsin's pride, inaugurated April 22nd as a day to honor the planet. It should have been every day, every day. I persuaded our student newspaper to let me edit a supplement. We all wrote for it. The New River Falls Ecology Action. Jim, Phil, Eugene, Margil, and Dirty Bill reprinted Gary Snyder's Smokey the Bear Sutra, quote, may be reproduced forever, unquote, for which Peggy crafted a marvelous drawing of a globe-clutching Mother Earth with her hand out, holding a car at bay. It was a beautiful day for cleaning up the Kinnikinnick. We hauled tires and bottles, boots, a section of picket fence, and even an old bedspring from the river behind the movie theater. Hippies helped police raise the flag in the park. We sent big thanks and smiles to Mother Earth that day, eight months after Woodstock and two weeks before the murders at Kent State sent us all back into the shadows. Still holding close the earth, our sustenance, our mother, our lifeline. There you go. So there's a little history there mm-hmm. encapsulated. First, first Earth Day. After hearing that, I sure as heck hope there's a poem about Dirty Bill. (laughs) (laughs) There is. There is. It just hasn't been uncaged into a book yet. Think he still goes by the name of Dirty Bill? Probably not. I know that he does. He's about 80 years old, and he lives out in Lincoln City, Oregon, and he makes crab traps to sell to fishermen. Wow. He was one of our River Falls originals. One of the better nicknames I've heard. (laughs) That's right. What else you got for us? Well, if you can over 
overcome the lethargy of, uh, of our northern spring, there's lots to write about, partly because spring is a time when, at least for a certain period of time, the changes are slow enough not to be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I tend to write poems in that transition period. Once everything starts bursting out all over the place, kind of too much, yes. too much. So these are all poems about not quite too much yet. This is called Nature Anyway, quite clearly a COVID-era poem from two years ago. Nature Anyway. The air is clean and brisk, and the birds have always insisted on social distancing. And we can still walk out and do the same. It's spring, but the wind is cold, pushes wrinkles across the face of the water. Out on the river, ducks, geese, mergansers, buffleheads, contribute heat to the great warming of the season. Nature, anyway, goes its way. Do you also have the feeling that somehow it's wiser than we are, that it knows and is trying to show us something we don't? This is a sacred space where whatever has died in us may yet live. So don't succumb to complaining or self-pity. Just try to be present for it. Putting no distance between yourself and the earth. Say, I'm ready for you to stand up in me. Say to the trees, make me the springtime. Make me the springtime. Yeah. There's the line that will be left with us. You know what? We have time for one more, and I'm looking out the window. I think a poem called Remedy for April is just what we need. (laughs) Okay. This is a fairly new poem. Listeners can find it on the website for the British periodical International Times, where it was published uh, last month. Hmm. Remedy for April. Early April teased us with summery days, then dropped us back into the cold. Don't despair. The squishiness of the ground beneath your feet flows with the sweet liqueurs Chaucer imbibed. Those sodden tatters on the path, their winter jackets, the new leaves fling down for the sun to walk on. If these signs aren't enough to poke holes in your melancholy, then try to notice the tiny green flames already licking the air and yellow in that green mist, the bonfires of the forsythia. Keep your feet on the earth and trust your joy to shine on you like an answered prayer. You have the word forsythia in there. Good for you. Forsythia, yes. That's a word that we don't say enough. Well, maybe we don't see enough forsythia. I'm going to admit in public that I wouldn't know a forsythia if I saw it. (laughs) Well, come over here to River Falls in a couple of weeks. Once you see it, never forget. It's time. <laughs> Thomas, happy National Poetry Month. Thank you for consenting to be part of this. Is there is there another term for what we just did other than killing two birds with one stone? Isn't there a nicer term? Um, Taking care of Poetry <laughs> Month and, and Earth Day all in the same yeah, swoop, yeah. that's cool, but killing two birds with one stone is just that's, oh, yeah. it's cruel. Yeah. Okay, Thank you, my gentlemen. friend, and uh, always a pleasure. My pleasure. Happy Earth Day, Thanks. everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.
That's a little thing called Strapped, and it's on the new album from David Whitman, recorded in Hollywood with good friends, some of whom are either from Eau Claire, like Jeffrey Keezer, or our fellow UW-Eau Claire grads, like Andrew Neasley, who writes and arranges for some of David's projects. The album is recorded in classic jazz septet configuration, and it's called O Hugo to honor the addition of young son Hugo to the family. Already including daughter Clara, for whom the album Old Clara was named, with just a hint of reference to a certain city in Wisconsin. David Whitman grew up in Menominee, Wisconsin, has studied and worked hard, and enjoys talking about who and what he loves. Well, you're a talented, sought-after musician and percussionist for both recording sessions and performances, an educator of the next generations, a name and a face and a sound that we find on recordings that bear your name. You're a dad and your other very good stuff. Just like every other kid, people said to young David, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say a musician? And uh, now that you're where you are, do you find uh, yourself uh, pinching yourself? You know, I, I, I do believe I, I wanted to do music and be a musician. You know, the specifics of that sort of grew up around me based on my circumstances. And I uh, consider myself very lucky, and I don't take it for granted. And, you know, I just keep trying to, to make the music the best music that I can and keep the music of the highest quality and caliber. And everything else sort of has just kind of been a consequence of that. The work, the daily work, is, is the musicianship and, and trying to keep that great. I, I don't know that I knew that the career would look exactly like it does in terms of all the details, but I did have a vision of a young man from Wisconsin working hard to try to become a, a great musician. Yeah, and I, and I aspire to be someday. I don't know that I'm there yet. That is what I'm looking to do, yeah. Just allow us to label you, so I'll, I'll call you a great <laughs> I'll call you a great musician, and you can stay humble. How's that? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, young people are sometimes discouraged from thinking of music as a career, and it's not really something that they can rely on. They're told to have something to fall back on. David Whitman seems like a guy who might say, music is a good career. Go after it but only if you go after it 120%. Do you find yourself telling young people those kinds of things? Yeah, actually. I think you touched on a lot of, there's a number of really important ideas in there. And I think it's it's true that society and the world around me, there's there's messages of, of that. There is that strong sentiment that it's, that it's not a career, can't be a career. I encounter that with students and, and their parents but you're you're absolutely right that it's not it's not necessarily easy at least for me it that has been my experience that it, it takes a, an incredible commitment hmm. and also it's it's a, it's a kind of a situation of delayed gratification if you're in it for money or you know you're looking for a quick kind of a quick route to the top sort of a thing you know that's that's not there at least that's not there for me it hasn't been there for me it's a lot more of a kind of a pay your dues situation where sure. You know, it's it's years and years of hard work, at least for me, small gains over time. And and it's true, students will come in. A lot of times there's conversations with their parents about what's available out there in terms of career and things. But cause it's incredibly competitive. There are lots of great jobs and performing opportunities, but of course, lots of 
players who would like to to have those opportunities. We're doing what what I call a little bit of David delving. Who you are, because that is very important in our appreciation for the music that you make. Uh, You're very generous in your recognition of those who mentored you. You have a high regard for those at UW-Eau Claire who helped you gather the tools and material to construct your foundation. You're pretty proud of that foundation. I'm going to jump all over the board here every once in a while. We watch interviews with musicians. Often there's like 50 guitars hanging in the background. I'm wondering about a percussionist. Do you have like 50 drum sets behind you when they're doing a video interview? Yeah. Do you travel with drum kits and are there favorites? And how many pieces does a guy like you possess? Great question. So this might be a little a long answer, but I'll start off by saying that recently there's a group out here called uh, Portraits of Music, Uh I believe a nonprofit organization started by a local musician teacher. They began by doing a a docuseries, an eight-episode docuseries on eight Southern California artists. I think five or six were musicians, most jazz musicians, or a few jazz musicians. Um, There's also a ballet dancer. I know, like Charles McPherson, who played with uh, Charles Mingus. Gilbert Castellanos is a trumpet player who plays in the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra and just an immaculate musician. And myself and some others are some of the jazz musicians that they selected uh-huh. to make docuseries episodes about and for. They did one on me, and it's here in the studio space. It's exactly as you say. I am surrounded. There's a shelf with five levels, two large shelves with five levels along one wall. Hmm. They're stacked to the ceiling with drums and equipment. And then in the room around me, five uncovered in use mallet percussion instruments you know a xylophone a vibraphone wow. two vibraphones actually a xylophone a, a bell set a five octave marimba there's currently three timpani i'm working with on a project the big kettle drums and there's one complete drum set set up and equipment stacked <laughs> up all around me yes it's exactly like that especially i think for percussionists for someone like me because i hear from older generations that there was more of the kind of work that I do 30, 40, 50 years ago, mm. perhaps because there's less of it, I play a wide variety. In fact, even out out here and even on the East Coast, I don't know a, t- a ton of guys who who do that the way that I do it and so many different things like or- orchestral and jazz mm-hmm. styles and a mm-hmm. drum set and you know that kind of thing. But it's been part of the you know patchwork that has t- kind of grown up around me as I have just tried to single-mindedly pursue this great musicianship you know in terms of the making a living aspect you take the work that you can get and so i need to have great instruments that sound great and and have just the right instrument for just the right time so yes i have there you go. i have many drums and i am surrounded with drums behind me i don't actually head out on the road that much but i am going out on the road here for two weeks and i'm going to drive in my commercial cargo van and I am going to travel with my own drum set because I do appreciate the sound that I've sort of developed. And the, and the, the equipment that you use is a, is a part of that. Well, it was Benjamin Franklin who once said, a craftsman is only as good as his tools. Certainly, I see that in the percussion world. There are better craftsmen than I, for sure. On the telephone with David Whitman.
You've heard of him. Yes, we've had him on the show because he's produced some wonderful and award-winning jazz albums. Eau Claire was one interesting title, and it made the people of Eau Claire kind of happy. We talked about Soul Flow, which was in the middle there, and now there's a new one called Oh Hugo. Clara and Hugo are David's two children. Oh, Hugo recorded at Capitol Studios. You like that place. I suggest that people go to the Capitol Recording Studios website and look around. It has Studio A, B, and C. There are adjustable louvered wall panels. There's a list of nearly 100 microphones to use. There's a couple of isolation booths in Studio A. And I got to tell you, I am completely mesmerized by the fact that Capitol Studios has eight echo chambers, acoustic echo chambers, and they're 30 feet under that uh, iconic Capitol Tower. You'll recognize it when you see it, folks. Digital echo and reverb are easy, but man, this is like the difference between using a tube amp and a solid state amp. That's fascinating to me, those echo chambers. I'm I'm guessing that old old studios uh, all had those at one time. The reverb chambers at Capitol Studios are quite special, I think, quite Mm. special. There was a great effort to to create them. There's small little spaces made from concrete under the ground yeah. because Capitol Studios is right next to the freeway, and it's very loud. It's right there in Hollywood. The reverb from those reverb chambers is part of the magical Capitol sound. You know, just to point out some of my favorite usage of those chambers on my albums, I remember, you know, there's a generous dollop of that natural Capitol reverb on Francisco Torres' trombone solo on Monty's Bag. So if you check out Monty's Bag and uh, listen to the trombone solo, that's what you're hearing there. I love that. And anybody out there in the audience who finds that stuff fascinating, again, go to the Capitol Recording Studios website. Okay, you prefer the septet arrangement, and it is said about this compilation that you recorded most of the songs in one or two takes. I'm wondering if one or two takes, one especially, of course, is is something that jazz musicians pride themselves in. Is that kind of like pitching a perfect game for a musician? Yeah, you know, producing my own work that authenticity of the first take and doing things together is important to me personally. The integrity of the music and the art that I'm pursuing personally. And I believe, thinking about Oh Hugo, because at this session I recorded so much material, I have another album that's going to come from this session. So we have Come What May, Strapped, Soft Eyes, Sweet Lips, What It'd Be Like, and Lullaby on Oh Hugo. I believe all five of those were first takes. Actually, no. What it'd be like, we did a few takes up to kind oh, of get well, the Well, shame on really you. And, <laughs> I know. and Lullaby in particular, Andrew brought, you know, so many arrangements for the session. We got through most of the material, and we were taking a break together. And I said, hey, Andrew, you know, we don't really have much in three. 
in three, four times. Mm. Do you have anything that you've written in the past that we could pull out here? And we pulled Lullaby out and made some copies, went back downstairs and just put it on everybody's stand. Everybody just read through just one time. Uh, yeah. At the end at the end of the session, myself included, we were all just sight reading it and it turned out to be one of my most favorite yeah. You know, uh, there are five tracks on the album. You've named them and uh, you've already answered one curiosity I had. And that was, do you go in with a configuration in mind or do you record a bunch and then choose after recording? So you've actually told us that you did record a lot of stuff and you decided on five pieces for this. I, because I don't know and because I, I, I love to listen to jazz, the couple of ways to enjoy jazz, you can hear it live or you can hear it through a speaker or some headphones. Tell me about playing jazz those couple of ways, live or into a microphone. How do they differ for the player? Yeah, great question. That depends on the caliber of musicianship, too. And there's, again, this is one of those questions I feel like I could write a book in response to. I have grown so much as a musician, I feel like, in the last, well, my, my whole life seems to be a trajectory of growth as a musician. Mm -hmm. But especially since pursuing my own recordings, and what I've learned in the studio has also shaped my live playing. And then what I've learned from great studio players who I perform with live has also shaped my playing quite a bit. And one big takeaway for me is that for the drums, and it seems like for all instruments, if you're trying to make artful music and you're really concerned about quality of sound and trying to do something there, for me, playing incredibly light and, and with a great amount of dynamic control has been something that has been essential in the studio. And then I have learned to carry that with me in my live performance as well. Even though, well, maybe if you were playing live, you know, maybe you could play a little bit louder and things would be a little more exciting. But the more dynamic control I engage in my musicianship, then the more impactful and expressive the music is in live performance as well. That's the voice of David Whitman. We're talking about the music of David Whitman and Friends. The latest album is called Oh, Hugo, and we would be remiss before we leave if we did not talk about your relationship with Andrew Neasley, the guy whose music you're comfortable with slapping your name on. Andrew and I played a lot together in college at Eau Claire. I always felt that he was an incredibly gifted arranger and composer. He was a real student of the process as well. His writing really shaped the way I listen to music and hear music. I have a strong appreciation for his, his melodic sense. To keep his music firmly rooted in tradition, but also there's something fresh and new about it. You know, I have great respect for that. He will say that his bag is music of a past era. But I really feel like his arranging and composing is forward-thinking. There's plenty of other arrangers and composers that I could have worked with, but there's nobody else that I would want to have worked with uh -huh. as much as Andrew. So I'm really, really grateful for him. I feel as if it's a privilege and a responsibility to be able to usher his music. 
the world. If I were young and wanted to learn all the best parts of and reasons for being a musician, I think I would choose David Whitman as my instructor. Not just because he's a he's a very good musician, but because he's a he's a very good man. There is something written about harmony in life translating into harmony in music, and whoever said it is pretty smart because that does happen. David, congratulations on your achievements. We are proud of your talent and that of your musical friends who grew up so much in our neighborhood. I thank you for being on this program because every time you're on, it means there's some brand new wonderful music. Thanks so much. My pleasure. My pleasure, Al. Oh, Hugo is a great CD. You can get yours or download it digitally on Bandcamp at davidwhitman.bandcamp.com and you can follow David on Spotify, Bandcamp, Instagram, and Twitter. I want to get a couple of memos in here and then we'll listen to David and friends take us home. Aaron McCauley and the Heron Street Band perform Saturday night at the Wide Spot in Stockholm. The Menominee Singers are presenting concerts Saturday and Sunday, both at 2 p.m. It's called To Sing Again, Chippewa Falls, Saturday afternoon, Menominee, Sunday afternoon. The 56th Commissioned Composer Concert, if you're listening Thursday, is this evening at UW-River Falls. Alex Shapiro comes to Abbott Concert Hall at 7.30 p.m. Her work is labeled as genre-blind acoustic and electra-acoustic. The event is free and open to the public. Hey, keep in touch via Spectrum West at WPR.org. Thanks, Rick and Kate, for the exposure, and thank you all for being a part of this. We hope you listen in on our conversations every chance you get. My name's Al Ross. Soft eyes and sweet lips from O. Hugo takes us home. Bye now.